And when they drew near to Jerusalem and they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you. Immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. He will send them at once. Now this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, full of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put them on their cloaks, and they sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went before Him and that were following were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! He entered Jerusalem the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? The crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus. Nazareth of Galilee. And this is the word of the Lord this morning. You know, the phrase, of course, that we use in our vernacular is dealing with our 15 minutes of fame. We all have our 15 minutes of fame. It's a well known as a quotation from Andy Warhol, even though he did not say it directly, but what he did say was this. In the future, everyone will be world famous for 15 minutes. And of course, the point is that everyone has a few minutes of fame and notoriety. Most of them disappear as quickly as they arrive. Flashes of being well-known stars in a one-hit wonder show that is quickly forgotten. Few survive the annals time, we can probably mention him. We think of Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Plato, Homer, so on. Names from an ancient past, two, three thousand years ago. So few in number, and yet, for some reason, they have stood out above the rest. In our own country, names of Washington and Jefferson, Lincoln, Roosevelt lived on. And my guess is we'd probably be hard-pressed to name all 46 presidents of the United States, much less all the senators, representatives, governors that have served over time. Same, of course, is true in religious history. You may remember a few years ago the name of Harold Camping. Famous for his end-time predictions that as far as I know, he was wrong in every single one of them. Unless I've been following something wrong or whatever. <laughs> he had passed away in the last ten years. He will go down the rabbit hole of memory. I only bring him up maybe because most of us have seen his predictions. Maybe we remember the name of Joseph. He is the founder of the Mormon church. His cold has gained a nationwide and even worldwide following, particularly in the western parts of the United States. But even in my own memory, I confess to knowing little about Jim Jones and his massacre that took place 
so many years ago. So on and so forth we go. We think about names that rise up that gain prominence and just as quickly they are gone. You know, Acts chapter 5 tells us about a couple of guys, Gamaliel the priest is standing there and they're trying to figure out what to do with these disciples, these followers of Jesus. And Gamaliel says, look guys, you remember Thutius and Acts 5.36 who rose up, claimed to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Of course, after him was Judas the Galilean who rose up in the days of the census and he drove away some people. These names are remembered probably because they're immortalized in Scripture. Otherwise, very few of us would know of these names. But why is it that every single one of us, the people around the world, all almost 8 billion people know and have heard of the name Jesus. Why this man? Why are we entering into what is known as a Holy Week? Commemorating the death and resurrection of Christ. Why do we have a universal holiday that commemorates His birth? We do that for so few other people. Why are there so many institutions around the world that bear His name, whether Mount Sinai or Carmel or St. Luke's or St. Thomas's? Why is it that we have all of these names and not the names of others? Could it be that this man has more than just his 15 minutes of fame? Could it be that there is something to this man named Jesus? As we think about that, my question to you this morning is this. Not who is Jesus. Probably all of us know who He is in terms of Christmas or Easter or whatever else like that. But what does He mean to you? What does He mean to you personally? Is He something more than just a name that you put on forms that you fill out when they ask your religious affiliation? Put out, I am Christian as opposed to Muslim or as opposed to Buddhist. Are you someone who follows Him because of the prestige and recognition that He gives? Are you someone who follows Him because you hope that this man will do something for you? That He will make your life wealthy and healthy? And you've heard all those Christians with all their money and whatever else. Which I'm not sure who they are. Are you hoping this man will make our country, the country, the place you lived in, to be a certain place that walks and lives a certain way that we will be a Christian nation or whatever you want to say? These are your things. Sorry to tell you this morning, but it's the wrong answer. Because there is only one thing the name of Jesus should mean for you this morning. And that is that He is not your money bank, that He is not your moral teacher. 
that, that He is your Lord and your Savior. The One who has come and has forgiven you of your sins. If you do not know Him as your Lord and Savior, I pray this morning that you will come to find Him. Because I am afraid there's many of us they're like the people here gathered on Palm Sunday. Take, for instance, my first point, which is this, who Jesus was to the crowd. Who was Jesus to this crowd? We are told large crowds were gathering around. Jerusalem, that Palm Sunday, verse 8. Again, I read to you, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before and that followed Him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Large crowds are following Him. It's not just here, but John chapter 6, we're told the same thing in John 6, verse 2. A large crowd was following Him because they saw the signs that He was doing on the sick. Verse 10, we're told Jesus told the crowds to sit down. And the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And that was just the men. So most believe the estimates are fifteen to 20,000 people. Large crowds are following Him. Why? John says because they saw what He was doing for the sick. They saw what was going on. And then they saw in this chapter, chapter 6, food being multiplied. Five fish and two loaves and good things being passed out to others in so much that there is leftovers. There's such a large crowd. They saw what Jesus was doing. They wanted in on the action. They wanted in on the fun. They wanted some of what Jesus was offering to them. We're not much different today, are we? We got that phrase again, speaking of vernaculars and phrases, if it's free, it's for me. At least that's a motto I like to live by. Live in a time where people feel entitled to so much. Commercials on television telling you, you are entitled to this and that and the other, and you need to call us and get what you are entitled to. We're not careful. That philosophy can creep right here into the church. We can become a follower of Jesus so that we can get blessings, material wealth, long and happy and prosperous lives. And this becomes for us kind of a dichotomy. We believe Jesus is the great physician. He is the divine healer. I believe what the Bible says that when you are sick, call for the elders of the church and let's pray for them. Let's believe God to heal them. We believe that God rewards faithfulness and as God, or as we, I should say, are generous to God with our tithes and our offering, that God can bless and multiply. That God can make our money go even further as we are faithful to Him. We believe that God works for our good and, and by following the principles of Scripture, there is a road to health and prosperity and long and happy lives. But at the same time, if we are not careful, 
We can lose sight of the fact that it does not profit an individual to live a hundred years on this earth with wealth and perfect health and yet not know Christ as Savior. We can lose sight of the fact that yes, it is true that God blesses and God gives generously, but at the same time, life is a time of struggle and pain and heartache. We become disillusioned, as I mentioned last week, because God does not want to seem to be moving. I mean, we pray for so-and-so, and and all of a sudden they come back next week and they're they're like, man, I had terminal cancer and God healed me. And then we pray for so-and-so and and they come back next week and they're like, man, God just blessed me with a million dollars. And yeah, here we are struggling. We want stuff. We want things. We think we should get from God. And when God doesn't, come through in the way that we think we should. It causes us to get discouraged or disappointed and we fail to even think about someone like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is a man who had a snake bite him. It was sure to kill him and he looked at that snake and shook it off and went about setting up camp in Acts 28. This is a man who took a man, a young man who had fallen out of a window and was dead because of the fall and he picked him up and the child, the young man, was alive instantly. And yet in 2 Corinthians 12, we're told God gave to Paul a thorn in the flesh. Messenger of Satan that harassed him. And he prayed to God, get this thorn out of me. And God said to him in 2 Corinthians 12.9, My grace is sufficient. Power is made perfect in weakness. I will boast, Paul said, of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on him. Was this thorn a physical sickness? Was it poor eyesight? We don't know exactly what it is, but we know Paul did not want to have it. And yet, God gave it to him. Paul said, if this is what you want, I know you'll give me the grace to carry it through. Crowds wanted a man who would give to them and meet their needs, but sure in this crowd, we also saw some religious leaders. Religious leaders. Who was Jesus to these religious people? Religious leaders want a man who would fit their religious boxes and live his life the way they think he should. Men who would fit the neat little life that they had carved out for themselves. Men who would dot all the I's and cross all the T's. Everything would be wonderful. After all, these guys were very careful. They honored the Sabbath day. I don't know what they did back then. Most of us, some of us may have a pedometer so that we can count our steps. Saw some picture where some lady had tied it to her dog's tail and she's sitting there on the couch and like, I get my 10,000 steps. Maybe we do that, but, but that's what they did. They, they counted all their steps on the Sabbath day to make sure they did not go too far. They were so careful with their money that they were given tithes of their spices. They grow a mint bush or plants or whatever it is, and they would count a tenth of it. Being so careful, they were extremely careful and diligent. 
There comes this crazy man. We're told about him in John chapter 5. Verse 9, A man who was paralyzed was healed, took up his bed and he walked. But the problem is, that was the Sabbath. And so the man, the Jews looked at the man who had healed him, of course being Jesus, and said, why are you healing someone on the Sabbath day? Don't you know we don't carry our bed around on the Sabbath? Kept the Sabbath. They honored the law. And then they even asked him, what's the greatest commandment? And by asking that, they were sure they were going to trip him up. In Luke chapter 10, a lawyer stood up and they put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to them, what's written in the law? How do you read it? He said, oh, you got to love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. expected Jesus, they expected this man to live a perfect life. And yet, Christ did live a perfect life. And yet, it was so far from what they expected. They realized that the Sabbath, as important as it was, is not near as important as a man's life, paralyzed and sick. Realize, of course, that loving our neighbor does not just extend to those who are of the same ethnicity and nationality, but it means all the people, even Samaritan, the sworn enemies of Jews. Here's my point for us again. If we're not careful, we can see Jesus as nothing more than a set of rules and regulations we keep. By observing them, we think we inherit eternal life. Religion becomes nothing more than an observance of rules and rituals. Begin to think that the only way you'll ever be close to God is by coming in your suit and tie every Sunday, bringing your big Bible, giving 10% of your income. Not against all of those things. Although it's been a while since I've worn a suit and tie. We need rules and rituals in our lives. But if that is all there is to serving Christ, we have found the wrong person. Serving Christ is not about keeping rules and regulations and rituals. And like I said, I'm not against those things. And there are certain things we do and ways we live. That's all there is. You don't have a relationship with God. You are missing the point of it all. So we have crowds, we have religious leaders, and then we have the zealots. The zealots. Who he was to these zealots. These are the men and women who anticipated a king wanted a king. You have to understand, they were under the oppressive rule of the Roman government. Government who attacks them, who would not let them be who they wanted to be. Roman soldiers would roam their streets and aggravate and antagonize the Jews over and over again. Here comes a man riding in that day. He is our King. Hosanna to the King. To the Son of David. 
Zana to the highest, to the one who is writing in. Scene that is playing out at Jesus' entry to Jerusalem is a familiar one. This is what kings do. They parade triumphantly into a city with all the trappings of glory and power. Even in our own area in New York City, we have ticker tape parades for those who are heroes. Look at this man. He's riding in, not in royal robes or full military garb. He's riding in plain clothes, common for that day. He's riding in not on a white horse, on a stallion. He's riding in on a humble beast of burden. They wanted a king to triumph and conquer Rome. We're not unlike that in our day today, are we? Most of us have a loathing in our lives of those in our government, government leaders. We vote in one party and we're ready to vote them out the day after they take office. We look at their ineptitude and we wish something different could be done. We had a different way to go. We want a hero. We want a strong man. We want a king who will ride in. Make things better. Again, what does it merit? What does it matter if we achieve the best, the biggest, most awesome political power we can find? If our party rules the country for decades, what ultimately will it matter to us? The Bible says in Psalm 46, verse 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter or tremble. They crumble to the ground. Nations rise and nations fall. It has been that way in human history and will continue. Crowds want gifts and miracles. The crowds want rules and regulations. The crowds want political power. But this man riding in that day offers nothing. If I can tell you honestly this morning that it's not what you need. You need something far, far greater. And the answer is found. The answer is found in the prophecy that declared Palm Sunday hundreds of years ago when the prophet Zechariah said about this king in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, when he said, Rejoice greatly. Rejoice, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and having salvation is he. He is humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Do you hear those words? He's coming. He's coming. He's not coming the way you expect him to. He is coming, though, not to bring what you think you need. You think you need power, you think you need fame, you think you need fortune, but He has come to bring salvation. See, what you need is not power, it's not fame or fortune, it's not all your wants and desires fulfilled. You need a Savior. Your sins have separated you from God, your deeds are as filthy rags in His sight, and there is nothing that you can take 
your sins away. You see, that's why we're here this morning. That's why we celebrate today and next week and the whole year long. We celebrate the fact that when we were alive, when we were, or dead, I should say, when we were without hope, Christ came to earth and He forgives the sins of everyone who calls upon Him. John the Baptist stood there preaching and baptizing in Bethany across the Jordan River. One day Jesus comes and John cries out those words. He saw Jesus coming, John 1.29, and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Who is this man? Who is this man? The crowds asked that day. The answer was, He is the man who will die on the cross, rise again three days later so that you might have salvation. Who is this man that is on the names of so many hospitals, so many schools and colleges, so many charity organizations? He is the one who came to bring salvation to you. So my final point this morning is this. Who is He to you? Who is He to you? I ask you that question. I challenge you. These words today. It's one thing to see Christ as a money bag. It's one thing to see Him as a moral teacher. It's one thing to see Him as a strict lawgiver. But this is not what you need. You need salvation. You need eternal life. You need hope for your life. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, when we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For will, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't have palm branches and coats to spread on the floor today. What we do have, though, is our heart and our lives. This is the question I ask you this morning. You have one choice. Either make Christ the Lord and the Savior of your life or reject Him. Because one day He will come again. Not riding on a donkey, not in Jerusalem, but He will come. Be visible to all. The world, Revelation 19 tells us this, I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse and the one who is sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness He judges and He makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. On that day he comes. On that day he will be your judge. So before that day comes, you have today to make Him your Savior. How many in the crowds accepted the gift of Christ? We don't know. Today you 
have that choice. Christian, as today we celebrate this day and we celebrate Palm Sunday, let us make the choice to worship not the one who heals, not the one who provides, not the one who raises the dead, but the one who forgives all of our sins, pardons all of our iniquities. Who is he? Who is he? Maybe we'll never know the name or remember the name of Noah Traper. Hopefully we'll see him again sometime soon. Maybe we'll never again know the name of Larry Cart. His name will pass from our memory so quickly. But you see, you won't answer for them. You will answer for you. You will stand before Jesus one day and He will ask you, who do you say that I am? This morning He asks you, and I pray that you will say, He is my Savior. He is my God. He is my Lord. Now let's pray together this morning, shall we? This is why He came. He didn't come as a king riding into Jerusalem to show his royal power, but he came because he humbled himself and he said, I am willing to die on the cross for you. Willing to give my life for you. That's why on Good Friday we have a day of remembering his death because he gave his life for you. You're here this morning and you have not received that. I pray today that you will. Simple as asking Him to come into your heart and saying, Jesus, come into my heart and forgive me of my sin. Make me a new person. Can I tell you today that if you do that, He will forgive you no matter, no matter what you have done. I've had affairs with my wife. I've cheated on my spouse. I've been a drunk. I've been a drug addict. I've been a murderer. God says it doesn't matter. You can be forgiven. I've been a fraud, a tax thief, felon. It doesn't matter. You can be forgiven if you will see him as your Savior today. Ask him to come into your heart. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to recognize you for who you rightly and truly are. One who saves, the one who forgives, the one who sets free. One who grants eternal life to all who believe in you. That we as Christians would never lose sight of that, and that if any does not know you, that they would remember that this morning we ask. Praise you for it in Jesus' name. Why don't you stand again today?